long time since we've done a specific message on um, the Lord's Supper or communion. And so today, we're going to hit it and get to the heart of what this thing is really about. And, um, you know, this is, I think, one of the historic... One of the historic faults with the church is that we've mistaken the ritual for the, for the truth that the ritual is meant to represent. So, for example, um, many people are baptized when, when you're young, okay? Communion and baptism are kind of the two rituals that we observe as Protestant Christians. We believe that the Lord Jesus himself commanded us to do these rituals, and so throughout history, for thousands of years, Christians have been baptized and they have participated in the Eucharist or the, um, or the communion service. Um, and we've done this, and many Christians have done this many, 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 many times. But let me just say this. The importance is not really the ritual itself, okay? Now, we observe the ritual, but the purpose of ritual is really the truth that the ritual represents. So, for example, it doesn't matter how many times you get baptized. You can get baptized 10 times if you want to. But if you do not die to yourself, which is what baptism represents, then you're missing the point. You're missing the point. The point of baptism is I die to my old life. I've made the decision that my life as I know it is now dead. I go under the water, which represents being buried in the grave. And when I come out of the water, I am a new creation. My life is not my own. I'm living for Christ's purposes, for his kingdom, for what he wants. That's what baptism is. It is a vow of fidelity to Jesus as king of your life. That's baptism. I know so many people that got baptized when they were like, 10 years old, and they didn't know what the heck they were doing. They just knew that they went under the water, they came back out, right? And there's, you know, some people like freak out because sometimes the pastor kind of holds them down there a little long, and like, oh my gosh, right? All this kind of stuff. But they don't know why they get baptized. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand rituals are important. They help memorialize important truths in the church. But if we don't understand the truth that they're representing, we don't honor that truth then we're missing the point of what it is that we're supposed to be doing, okay? So I just gave you a one-minute explanation of baptism. Now I'm going to give you an hour-long explanation of communion. Amen, amen. I'm just kidding. It won't be an hour, probably. So here we are in Luke 22. We're going to start at verse 7. It says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Okay, let's pause right there. Okay, this is a one of seven feasts that Jews were commanded to keep, okay? So in the law of Moses, the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, the Jews are specifically commanded to keep seven feasts every single year. Media team, do we have that slide that I sent you in the email? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Here are the seven feasts. And what you're going to find is that they're split into two groups. Okay. Specifically, there's four. Then there's another that happen in the springtime, and they're pretty close together. And then there's another three feasts that happen in the autumn, in the fall, and they're fairly close together, all right? Now, what you need to understand is that these feasts are prophetic declarations of the entire community, all right? It's not like God just said, hey, I, got, I want you to party a lot, so you better do it at least seven times a year, okay? That's not the spirit of what they're doing here. No, each feast is specific and represents a specific truth and a prophetic declaration for the future. Am I making sense? 
Yes. Okay, good. So as Christians, we should be very familiar with these spring feasts or these spring holidays. Why? Because when Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, he was the fulfillment of these four feasts. Okay? And so what we see is that Jesus died on Passover He was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was resurrected at the Feast of Firstfruits, the firstfruits from the dead. And then 50 days later, the Spirit of God is poured out on the new church on the day of Pentecost. Okay? These were four feet. Can I just say it was not coincidence? Wow, that's an amazing coincidence, right? It just happened to happen on those feast days. That's amazing. No, dummy, it's prophetic. All right. Why? Because the feasts were meant to communicate the truth of who Jesus was and what he was doing. This makes sense. I sure hope so. I hope this is not the very first message you've ever heard on the correlation between Jesus' life and these feasts. But if it is, don't worry. We'll go into it just a little bit. All I'll say right now is that the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. The fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled. Okay? Jesus is going to return. Boom. Feast of trumpets. The trumpet will sound right? Christ will return. There's a day of atonement and the tabernacles. I don't want to get into a whole message on the spring feasts, but these, the prophetic fulfillment of these happens when Jesus returns for the second time, okay? The fact that he fulfilled the fall feasts, the spring feasts, excuse me, should give us incredible confidence that he's going to fulfill the fall feasts, right? That's the idea here. All right, now let's go a little bit into Passover. All right, how many of you guys have seen the movie about Joseph, the Exodus, or sorry, not Joseph, the Exodus, right, with Moses? What's that one where they sing all weird? The animated one. The Prince of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, good. So if you have seen the Prince of Egypt, all right, then you know the story of the Passover, okay? The idea is that you have the Israelite people, and what happened to them? They are in bondage, right? They're in slavery, and they are being oppressed by the Egyptians. And what happens? God speaks to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, I'm going to use you to set my people free. He sends Moses to Egypt, and he tells the Pharaoh, let my people go, saith the Lord. And what happens? Pharaoh says, no way, dude. And so God sends these plagues, right? He sends all of these plagues. One interesting note is that Scripture specifies that the plagues are a judgment against the Egyptians and a judgment against the gods of the Egyptians, all right? The gods specifically are being judged through these plagues. So, for example, when the sun refuses to rise, there's blackness. That's one of the plagues. There's darkness over the whole earth. This is a judgment against Ra, right? The idea is that the Egyptian sun god controls the sun, except Yahweh shows that he's the one who has power over all these other gods, right? So it's a great judgment against the gods of Egypt. And the final plague, the final judgment that's sent out is the destruction of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Okay, and if you're familiar with the story, God tells the Israelites, this is what you must do. You must kill a lamb and eat it. And you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorposts of your house. And every house that has the blood of the lamb on it will be passed over right, when the angel of death comes that night. So what happens is the Israelites put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. That night, the angel of death comes and kills firstborn inside every house that does not have the blood on its doorposts. And this is the act that finally drives Israel to freedom. What happens, Pharaoh gets so angry, so upset, so defeated that he finally says, get out of here, go. And he lets them go. So what you see is that Passover, right, is the thing that brings freedom to God's people. All right, I hope you're hearing some echoes of what happened when Jesus died on the cross, because you should hear some echoes, right? 
because Jesus is the true fulfillment of Passover. So for thousands of years, the Israelite people are keeping this feast in remembrance. They're remembering what God did, how he heard their cries of oppression, and he, and he led them into freedom through his great signs and wonders. And they've kept this feast for thousands of years, and Jesus comes and he changes it. He says, now, he's taking the Passover meal with his disciples, and he's saying, now, my disciples, you're going to take this feast in remembrance of me. He's infusing the story of Passover with another story that's very similar, but is slightly different. It's an update. It's a fulfillment of what Passover was really meant to communicate. And look, if you don't know this about God, this is kind of how he tends to do things, all right? Everything that you're going to see in Israel is a representation of what he does in the New Testament church. It's to liken it to us in many ways, okay? And what we see here in this example is that God uses the blood of the lamb to bring salvation to his people, all right? And Jesus says, that's what's going on here. So in verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after, he, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So here's Jesus. He's infusing the Passover meal with new meaning. And they don't know. They're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> All right, what's going on? <laughs> they don't really understand what's about to happen, but they're about to get the rude wake-up call because that night Jesus is going to be arrested. They're going to be scattered, and they're going to watch their king crucified on a cross, and they are still going to be confused, right? They still don't understand what's going on. Now, you've got to understand why. Because they didn't have a paradigm that this was going to happen to him. They thought he was going to be king. He was going to rule over the nations. They were arguing about which were all like, who's the greatest? Who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand? And Jesus is trying to warn them and saying, um, actually, first, something's got to happen. The Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and elders, right? It must suffer at their hands. And that's what we see. This is what happens. Jesus is crucified on the cross. And there's still a big debate today about what exactly the importance of that is. Now, I understand for many of you, you got the elementary version 101 of the cross, okay? It looks like something like this, all right? Elementary version 101 says something like this. God was really mad at humanity, and he wanted to kill them all, but instead he sent his son, and instead he punished his son on the cross, and now whoever puts their faith in him can be free. That's what many people think about when they think about the gospel, what the gospel is. Well, you ready to get a little bit lower than that, a little bit deeper than that? Is that okay? Yeah, I don't know, Pastor Dennis. I don't like it when you go on these long theological things. Come on now. Come on, you got to understand the Bible, all right? Amen? We got to understand the Bible, all right? All right, I'm taking you through a mini seminary class. You ready? Okay, yeah, okay, all right, okay, amen, okay. All right, this is one theory of atonement, okay? If you go to seminary, you will actually learn that there are four major theories of atonement, all right? This is one called penal substitution, penal substitution. It is the dominant theory of atonement in Western Christianity, okay? Newsflash, you are in Western Christianity, Okay? But if you don't know this, there's a whole other branch of Christianity called Eastern Christianity, okay? And to your surprise, they do not teach this in Eastern Christianity, okay? In fact, penal substitution as a theory of atonement really only came about um, in between 1000 and 1500 AD, somewhere around there, 
Okay, there's kind of the development of it throughout those times. And so what we see is that in the early church, they didn't have a very well-developed theory of penal substitution. That came later, this idea that the wrath of God is turned on the Son, and then the Son bears the weight of that wrath and because of that humanity is freed and saved. Okay? In fact, what I want to say is that in the early church, they emphasized a different theory of atonement, and it's one that most Western Christians have no idea. They're like, what is this? I've never even heard of this. Okay, well, you're going to hear about it today. Amen? Now, actually, before I go on, I better, I better clear something up, because if you're a little more into theology, you will know that there's actually a huge debate today on this subject. Okay, there's a very big debate. Um, a guy named N.T. Wright wrote a book, and John Piper wrote an angry book back, right? And some other guys wrote books, and they're all writing books, okay? Everybody's writing books, kind of debating these theories of atonement. It's a major topic in theological discussion right now, okay? So just to give you a flash forward, because some of you, if you're a little more theologically inclined, you might be like, where is this going? I don't like this, okay? So I just want to be clear right up front. I think penal substitution is an important part of the gospel, okay? I think it's important. I think it's in the Bible. It's a good thing, okay? I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing. I'm trying to say it's not the only thing, okay? It's not the only thing. There is a second view of the atonement that is criminally underemphasized in the Western church today, and it was the dominant view of the early church, okay? This is the view of atonement that the early church fathers spoke most about all the time. This view of atonement is called Christus Victor, Christus Victor. And this is the idea that on the cross, Jesus triumphed over powers and principalities. Now, if you're a typical Western Christian, you're like, yeah, cool. Like you understand that's part of the Bible, right? Like that's in there, right? You've read some verses, and we'll read a couple here. You've read some verses that say something like that. The problem is you don't really know why that's important. Like why is it such a big deal that Jesus triumphed over powers and principalities, right? Why, why is that relevant, right? If the whole story is God the Father, his anger has to be taken out on somebody, but Jesus comes in and takes the punishment for us, what do these powers and principalities have to do with anything? How are they even part of this thing? And I want to lovingly say that we're not going to be able to do a full exposition of this right now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce the topic to you a little bit. And those of you who are a little more theologically interested, well, you should read a little bit. Because this is fascinating stuff. All right, And if you're in my discipleship group or my intern group, Oh, don't worry, we shall talk a good amount about all of this, okay? So this is the idea. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You don't have to turn there. It should be on the board. It says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Very interesting, right? I like this verse because it's getting at both of these ideas, right? It has clearly the idea... Christ died for our sins. That's the penal substitution part. That part is important and good. But it's also bringing in this idea of the powers and principalities being disarmed and, God, and Jesus making a public spectacle of them. This is the part that most Western Christians just kind of skip over. So, yeah, yeah. Like, we don't sing that many songs about this kind of stuff, right? We sing a lot of songs about the blood of Jesus and how it washes my sin, how it brings me favor with God. We don't sing a lot of songs about, he triumphed over powers, right? Yes, he conquered the devil, right? We don't think that much about these types of things. Like I said, I can't go too deep into it, but I want to try and give you something of a paradigm for this. Is that okay? Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to, here's what we're going to, um, here's what I'm going to give you. My basic understanding of this is that you have to have a theory of these powers and principalities. Now, was it last week that I talked about Psalm 82? Seems like an eternity ago. 
But yeah, it was just last week. Last week, we talked a little bit about this idea of a divine council, that there are these many, what we would think of as archangels, these ruling angels, and that they're on some kind of council with the Lord, with Yahweh. Now, I'm always really clear about this. Yahweh created these beings, okay? These beings are not gods in the sense that they are equal with Yahweh, but what we see is that they have and given authority by Yahweh. Yahweh, God, is the one that gave them authority, and they have authority over the nations. Now, we're going to see this many, many times throughout the scriptures, this idea that in, by the time Jesus comes, the devil is called the ruler of the world, okay? Now, these, these aren't going to be on the board, but just listen to some of this language. Hebrews 2 says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Pause, wait a second. I thought God would have the power of death. Why would the devil have the power of death? Hmm. Interesting. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. John 8 says this. You belong, as Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Interesting. Ephesians 2 says this. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So what's the paradigm that scripture is giving? Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of the world. And if you remember, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And what happens? The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, all of it belongs to me. And if you bow down and worship me, right, I can give them to you. So Satan himself is claiming to be the ruler of all of this, okay? The problem with this paradigm for us is this doesn't make sense. I thought God is the ruler of everything. I thought God owns all the nations, right? I thought God was the boss. How does this devil person get in here and get all of this authority? And the answer really is that God gave him this authority. Okay, this is the entire paradigm of understanding that there are these other ruling angels, these other princes who are given their authority by the father. And what happens now? All the peoples that they are ruled by are in slavery. Hmm. Does that sound like something we were just talking about? Right. Yes, it does. It sounds like the Passover, right, where God sets free these people that are in slavery. Well, what Scripture is saying is that the earth is under us bondage, right, that the people of the earth are under bondage because they belong, they have, they're under the power of the devil, and they're enslaved by sin, okay? The reason why this is important is because on the cross, what does Jesus do? Yes, he absorbs the wrath of God. He pays the price that he could not pay. And the way that Scripture puts that into language is it says that he paid a ransom. What's a ransom? Well, a ransom is the price that you pay to free a slave. How can we understand this? The only way that we can understand it is that if humanity is in the eyes of God belonging to the devil, the humanity belongs to the devil, and that's why Christ has to take back authority over the devil, and he does that on the cross. How does he do that? Through the cross, Jesus demonstrates unparalleled faithfulness to the Father. He demonstrates obedience to the Father. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians, right? He pours out his life unto death. Therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name. Right, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So what happens? On the cross, Jesus wins great authority over all the powers of evil. What happens? God says, this one deserves to rule over all of these others. Okay? 
That's what the scripture is talking about. That's the victory that Jesus won on the cross. That's why you're able to be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. That's the nature of the war that we're in. What are we doing? We're going around the earth and we're setting free peoples that are enslaved to hostile powers. I want to say this, brothers and sisters. If you don't understand this aspect of the gospel, it's very difficult to understand that you are at war. You're in a spiritual war. It's not like a war. It's not figuratively a war. It's a spiritual war for the souls of all of humanity. This is the battle that we're in. In fact, Scripture said that we're, our battle's not against other people. It's against these spiritual powers. And so this is why I find that when Christians don't have this understanding, you know what happens? Whenever bad stuff happens to them, they start blaming God. God! Why'd you let my girlfriend dump me? God, why'd you let me get fired from work? God, how come you let that person make fun of me in class today? God, how come you did this? How come you did that? And the whole time, God's like, hey, dummy, I'm on your side. But you're in a war. You're in a fight. And if you don't understand that, you get beat up by the enemy and you start blaming God. I want to say this, church, if you want to thrive in this life, you got to fight. This life is for fighters only. If you don't fight against the devil, you know what he likes to do? Just beat on you all day long. He will just let you have it over and over. He has no mercy. Okay? He's not a nice guy. He goes, oh, he doesn't want to fight. Okay, well, I'll leave him alone for a little bit. No, that's not how it works. Okay, if you don't fight in this thing... You just get beat down. And spiritually what that looks like is you get filled with depression. You get filled with confusion. You forget the purpose that you have in life. You forget all of this stuff. What's happening? The enemy is attacking your mind. He's destroying your ability to be effective for the kingdom. He's robbing you of your joy and of your peace. He's trampling on you. And guess what? God is not going to step in and beat up the devil for you. Why? Because he called you to do it. Some Christians have a hard time understanding that. Hey, newsflash. If you're getting spiritually beat up, it ain't God's fault. Why? Because he made a way for you to be spiritually powerful. He made a way for you to engage in the warfare that you're supposed to be engaged in. And he is determined that you would be trained. Can I say this? As a parent, we always want to protect our kids. Right? I heard, I don't know if I'm okay to say this. I'll just tell you a little bit, okay? I heard that somebody was being mean to my son at school. I started getting all these ideas. <laughs> right? I was like, give me that principal's phone number, right? Give me a teacher's number. Give me someone's number, right? So I'm going to go down there. I'm like, why didn't you protect him? Right? And then I took a step back. I was like, wait a second, wait a second, right? Kids do mean things to me, other kids all the time, right? I said, Judah, right, you got to stand up for yourself, right? You got to learn how to fight, okay? Now, let me clarify. I'm not saying that he should immediately go punch the other kid, but I do think there's a time for that, by the way, okay? Just to be clear, okay, when Scripture says turn the other cheek, that does not mean never fight in my theological opinion, that means bear petty insults, okay? Someone gives you a petty insult, you bear it. Somebody tries to take your head off, you don't. No, I think you can fight, okay? I don't think you should always fight. There is a time, all right, like when the government is coming at you sometimes, you just let the government kill you, you take the martyr's crown, it's all good, okay? But I don't believe in this idea that you're not supposed to fight, okay? That, that no. We are fighters, okay? Sometimes it manifests in the physical, but mostly in the physical, it's when you're protecting someone else, all right? That's the time to fight, all right? Don't be like, you know, somebody beats up your sister. You know, God told us to, you know, turn the other cheek, all right? No, you will protect your sister, man. Come on. Brother, is somebody picking on one of our girls? You step in there, right? We don't let our girls get picked on like that, okay? You can pick on me, all right? 
I'm serious. I'm serious. We got to defend one another. Now, hear me. Our physical actions should be defensive in nature, right? I'm not saying you go beat them down and you give them a couple of extra hits to, all right, that's not what I'm saying, okay? And yes, you should bear petty insults, okay? Someone does something small to you, just brush it off, whatever, okay? Someone cusses you out, flicks you off, whatever, brush it off, okay? Get some, get some tough skin up in here, all right? But if your life is in danger or if the life of someone that you're, you know, that you're nearby is in danger, you step up and defend them. All right? Amen? Amen. Okay. That being said, okay, my son, I can't fight all his battles. I can't just step in and protect him from all the harm that comes. You know what happens if I do that? He's always going to be looking for me, right? Dad, 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 dad. (laughs) No, you got to teach him to fight himself. He's got to be able to stand up for himself. Right? Brother says, I say it works the same way with God. All right? Sometimes we want God to come and rescue us. God, rescue me from these mean small group members, God. Right? Rescue me from these mean atheists on campus. Right? But I want to say lovingly, look, no, God wants you to become mature. And that means that you have to learn how to deal with some of this stuff. You've got to learn to fight. Okay? That's why he gave you weapons of warfare. Right? The weapons of, the war- of your warfare are not so that you can, like, admire them and, and say, God, help me. Right? No, you use the weapon. You use it. The shield of faith. You deflect the accusations, the untrue lies. You brush them off. And then you attack with the sword of the spirit. You attack with the word of God. All right? That's important. I'm telling you. I get in all these little Facebook fights, you know. I kind of enjoy little Facebook fights sometimes. All right? Now, hear me, because my understanding of what it means to love is not to be nice, okay? I don't have that paradigm, all right? Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. No, no, I'll be kind, okay? But I'll be truthful. Excuse me, Jeremiah was not nice, right? John the Baptist is not most characterized by being nice, right? No, he was going after people. You brood of vipers. Where are the pastors saying that today? I'm serious. Where are the pastors rebuking our freaking state assembly? Tell me I can't teach what the Bible's taught for 2,000 years? No. Yes, I can. I can teach this all day long. We should be rebuking the state of California. All right, I've said that before. But I say this, brothers and sisters, you got to learn to fight, okay? When we're talking about this idea of Jesus triumphing over powers and principalities, why? Because Jesus is... He's a fighter. He's a warrior. Do not be deceived into thinking that the way that he acted the first time when he came, that's the way you're always supposed to act in every situation. No, no, no. We've been through this before. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, he's not coming like the lamb. He's coming like the lion. The truth is the lion was inside him all the time. He told the person, do not think that I couldn't ask my father and legions of angels would come and defend me right now. So I could say the word and smash all these fools. But he allows himself to go through hardship. Okay, he allows himself to go through. Can I tell you something? There's a difference. There's a difference between when you have inner strength and you allow other people to wrong you. There's a difference between that and having no inner strength and people wrong you and not knowing how to stop it or how to fix it. Those are two different things. Okay. And this is important because sometimes you're going to be in a community situation where you need to take the petty insult, where you need to take the wrong being done to you, where you need to bear this in love, right? There are times where that's important, and there are times where you need to step up and defend yourself. There are times where you need to step up and be like, excuse me, no, that's not okay. And I I lovingly say this, in our cultural context, we're really bad at the second. What we normally do is when stuff like that happens, we take it, and then we go back and we stew over it, and we talk to our friends, can you believe that person did something nice? Right. And then we form little coalitions, right? And then we gang up on them when we're bigger in number, something like that, okay? Can I tell you, that, that, that is division, all right? That is division. That's what happens if you don't know how to rightfully stand up for yourself when the time requires it. Okay? There's a time for both, and you can do it everything in the right spirit. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, was not just standing there being like, 
sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry for everything that you're doing to me. No, he's declaring the truth to them, right? What's he saying? This is wrong. But how is he doing it? With truth and love, right? With truth and love. He's saying we're going to build a greater humanity. He's not rejecting the people who are oppressing him. He's talking about we're going to become one together, right? He's casting all this vision, and he's willing to go to jail, and he's willing to face the fire hoses, and he's willing to face the persecution, but he's not bowing down in his spirit. Am I making sense? Brothers and sisters, this is how the church has done it for thousands of years. This is how we roll. This is what it means to be a Christian. Okay, we're not the pushovers of society. We're the ones that abolish slavery in the earth. Okay, we're not the ones who just lie down and take it. That's not the spirit that we're talking about. We take wrong suffered, we forgive our enemies, and we declare the truth to them. And we warn them that a day of reckoning is coming. And you have time to repent, and I want you to repent because I love you. Okay, we had a sexuality conference the past two days. I really wish more of you guys had come. Because I feel like this is one of the most important topics of the hour. We make an entire conference for it. Because, by the way, I get more questions on this topic than maybe any other topic. So many of those questions on this topic. We do a whole conference for it, and there's only like 10 of y'all here. Like, why? Next time, okay? I forgot why the heck I brought that up. Dang it. All right, forgive me. All right, let's get back to our material. Oh, shoot. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase the last part. Amen. Okay, our topic is communion, and this is relevant to this. All right. All right. I'm just going to paraphrase um, the passage because if we take the time to read it and parse it, it's going to take forever, Okay. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us warning about communion, taking it in an unworthy manner, okay? Taking it in an unworthy manner. And this is what he describes to them. You know, I'm just going to read at least part of it here, okay? 1 Corinthians 11, in, in verse 20, it says this, So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result... One person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And what's Paul getting at? They're having communion. They're having Passover meal together. And what's happening? They're just thinking about themselves. Some people have food and they're eating their food. Some of them are they're, they're getting drunk on it. And there's other people over there. They have nothing to eat because they're poor. And Paul's like, what the heck is wrong with you? This is not that you're violating the spirit of the communion. How can you claim that this is the Lord's Supper that you're partaking in? And brothers and sisters, I want to say this. This type of thing happens all the time in the church. Why? We've created this consumer mentality where church is about how we can bless you. And we train Christians to think, what am I going to get out of the service today? And how is the service going to bless me? And hmm, what did I think about that worship leader? And oh, what did I think about their greeters? And oh, what did I think about the pastor? And we're always judging everything. And I want to say this, you're missing the point. I tell this to my kids. You don't come here so that you can get blessed. You come here to bless him. All right, I lovingly say this. We have long worship. Deal with it. Because the worship ain't for you. It's not for you. If you're in the worship, you're like, dude, it's going so wrong. Don't they know that I don't like this? No. I ain't thinking about you at all. I'm trying really hard not to think about you. I'm trying to think about him. Our corporate worship times are for him. We invite you to come and do your duty as a believer to worship him. Okay? This ain't no like we're trying to make it so amenable to you, right? I've had people tell me all sorts of stuff, right? Like, why do they, why do they have to sing so long? You know, all this kind of stuff. Some of the I get, we want to make, we want to try and do whatever we can to make it easiest for everyone to enter in and worship him. Okay, that's the point, all right? I want you to worship God, but 
Brothers and sisters, I, I, you know my heart in this. 90% of our churches are oriented towards trying to meet the needs and, and please people. And I, there's such a problem with this. There's such a problem with it. Because we're training believers to be selfish in their mindset. Okay? We're training believers to be selfish in their mindset. And that's why they think they're justified in having this mentality. No, when we come to church, we don't come for us. We come for him. Because we owe him. We owe him a great debt. And look, this is the way it works. When you orient your heart correctly, you get greatly blessed. Right? You get greatly blessed if you come saying, God, here's my worship. I just want to bless your heart this morning. I just want to please you with my worship. I just want to love on you, and I want you to be made happy. I want your heart to be made glad through my worship, God. When you do that, you know what happens? You meet God. And you know what happens when you meet God? You get blessed. It's amazing, right? But if you come with the mentality of, oh, man, like, gosh, things along with God, you miss God. You miss him. Does this make sense? And I want to say this, what Paul is criticizing here about the Lord's Supper is the same thing. Everybody, they're thinking about themselves, but they're not thinking about what their responsibilities are. This is the nature of Christianity. If you die to yourself, you say, Jesus, what do you want out of my life? Then you know what he does? He gives you all the desires of your heart. Right? It's the bomb. You just don't go straight there. Okay? You don't go straight there. You ought to take the, the wilderness road, right, where you die to your flesh and all this kind of stuff. And then when you arrive, you get super blessed and God gives you the desires of your heart. And you're like, this was worth it. This was so worth it. Okay. But I want to lovingly say this. Paul's criticizing the church because they're thinking of themselves and they're not thinking about one another. All right. And what he's going to do is then he's going to warn them in verse 27. He talks about this. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. He's talking about dying. He says a number of people in the community are dying, or they're weak or they're sick, because there's so much selfishness. They're not fulfilling the law of Christ, what happened on the day when Christ took the, the last supper with his disciples, he speaks to them. He says, this final command I give you, love one another. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but not so among you. He who would be the greatest among you must become the servant of all. Even as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus is talking about. When you come, come for others, okay? We come first for God, and then we come for one another. That's church. Church is about the other people around you. When you do that, you grow. You get blessed. You get mature. You get fulfilled. When you fail to obey his commands to love him and love one another, what happens is church loses its life. It sucks. It's boring. The worship sucks, right? It's always, it's always bad. Can I tell you? I feel like a lot of times I can meet with God even if nobody else can. I'll just be back there worshiping even if the worship sucks, right? I feel like I can meet with God. You know, you can have the same heart towards a message. The message can be horrible, but I tell you, if you're hungry, God will speak to you. This is how it works. Our hunger draws the presence of the Lord. It draws his work in our lives. And so I say this lovingly, church, today as we are getting ready to take the communion, what we're commanded to do is examine our own hearts. Examine ourselves. Allow the Spirit of God to search us and show us if there's anything that's problematic inside of us. We're going to take some time to do that in just a second. But I want us to understand some of the parameters here. This is evidence of division in the body. Number one, unrepentant sin for another person. If there's someone in this community that you have sinned against, you know you've sinned against them. You've stolen something from them. Then you have to return it. You've slandered somebody in this community. The Spirit of God reminds you of something you said to dishonor someone else. Brothers and sisters, you need to repent for that. And then you need to go and honor them to the people that you dishonored them towards. Okay? 
Repentance is not just saying sorry by yourself. It's going and fixing whatever can be fixed by your sin. Am I making sense here? If you've lied to someone, you got to go back and tell the truth to them. That's a tough one. I've done that one a bunch of times. Right? It's not easy to fulfill that one because you have to humiliate yourself. You know what? When I said that, it was not true. That's embarrassing. But can I tell you, that's how you grow. All right? I bought a shirt off eBay one time when I was poor. Old Brooks Brothers shirt. You guys know Brooks Brothers? Like a nice clothes company. All right? And then I heard they have a lifetime return policy. So I was like, Wah. So I went to the store, and I tried to return it for one that would fit better. Right? And he looked at the shirt. He looked at the serial number because they have freaking serial numbers on each individual shirt. And he said, sir, this, this shirt is like more than 10 years old. It's like, where'd you get it? I said, oh, uh, you know, I got it from my dad. He's like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Hello? I went back to my car, I was driving home. The Spirit of the Lord thundered on me. He said, you lied to that man, and you tried to steal from that store. <laughs> I called him back on the phone. I said, can I speak to, can I speak to, I forgot his name, like Mike or whatever, the salesman person knew it. Right? And they brought Mike on. I was like, Mike, I was just in your store. I lied to you. I am so sorry. Like, I'm an idiot. I didn't say I'm an idiot, but I was like, I, that's basically what I said. I'm an idiot, right? And he said, he kind of laughed. He's like, don't worry. It's okay, you know. But I, I had to do that. I had to do that. It was my sin. I had to own it, right? Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you feel like you're not growing, can I tell you what almost always the cause is? You're unwilling to humble yourself before others. And obey his commands. I'm serious. I'm serious. Especially in our culture. I Hear my heart in this. Because I love, I love my Korean side, okay? I love Korean churches. And I love, I love Koreans. I love most of you guys there. But we have such a non-confrontational culture. And it's so problematic. It holds us in immaturity. Because we're unwilling to confront. We're unwilling to be humiliated before others, right? And I got to say this. If you won't humiliate yourself before others, it's very difficult to grow in humility. You almost can't do it. And when that happens, you can't mature. Because whenever God wants to do a great work in your life, he has to take you to a new depth of humility. Okay? Humility is the foundation that he builds your life on. If he can't take you to a new depth of humility, then he can't build any higher in your life. I want to say this is why many Christians get stuck in their spiritual walk. Because God convicts them of something, and they don't obey. They refuse to obey, right? And they let the conviction pass. They just try to brush it off. Right? I hope that's not God, right? And you start to lose that sense of conviction. And pretty soon, it's gone. And what happened, you didn't obey the Lord, and you missed the window of opportunity to obey the conviction that he put in your heart. Okay? I want to lovingly say this. As we take communion today, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. I want to ask that we would have the Spirit of the Lord search our hearts and see if there's any, any way, any wayward way, any anxious thought. Right? For some of us, we don't have wisdom. And so what happens, because we don't know how to put up right boundaries, when we get hurt, we, we ditch it, okay? We leave it behind. We leave our community behind, okay? And I want to say this. If you're not committed to a small group, I want to lovingly say this, okay? It's going to be impossible for you to grow. If you're not committed to a small group, it's going to be impossible for you to grow. Right, right now I'm speaking, right, our house churches, we always try and make time for what we call gender ministry, time for you to share with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay? If you go to those gender ministries and you don't really share, right, going through issues, you're struggling with sin, but you don't tell them about it. Can I tell you, it's going to be hard for you to grow. You're not going to grow. You're going to stay the same. Why? Because you must confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
I, what I'm trying to get at is this. In our culture, this shame-based culture, if you don't conquer shame, you cannot be mature in the Lord. If you don't overcome shame, you cannot be mature in the Lord. And many Christians don't realize it. They don't recognize what's holding them back. And I want to say this. You've got to make the decision that you are going to cling to the body of Christ, that you're going to love the body of Christ. It's not enough to come on Sundays. Hear me. I'm glad that you come on Sundays. Please continue to. All right. But you can't love people on Sundays. I say this lovingly. Even if you're a member of the worship team or even a greeter, right? You're like, like hey. God, can I say, that's, that's nice. That's good. But it's not the same as committing to a group of people in the context of a small group. It's not the same as opening up your heart and your life to them. It's not the same as being interested in their lives and hearing about it and being devoted to seeing them thrive in the Lord. That's what it means to love others. You've got to make a decision. Can I tell you, you can't put it all on the house church leaders to make you come out. Come on now. Man, you should be calling your house church leaders. Don't make them call you and reach out to you. You say, Justin, I can't wait for small group today. I'm going to pour out my heart, right? I'm going to ask everybody, what's going on in your life, brother? How can we pray for you? How can I serve you? You need help moving? You need a ride? Whatever it might be, how can I be there for you? Can I say, you can't do that with everyone, right? Man, you'd be driving all day long giving all these people a ride. But you can do it with a handful that's the point. You got to have a handful of people that you're actively committed to loving. Or exactly what is church to you? If you think church is showing up on Sundays and listening to a message, I got a news flash for you. This ain't really church. This is one small aspect of church, but it's not the most important aspect. The most important aspect is being committed to godly fellowship. To open up your life counseling one another, praying for one another, studying scripture together, doing together, ministering to one another. How are you going to grow your gifts if you never practice your gifts? You're going to practice them here? No, you're not. There ain't no way to practice. You're going to distract everybody. You got to do it in the context of a small group, of a house church. This makes sense. I always say this. You don't need to be part of one of our house churches, okay? Some of you guys have campus fellowships and stuff like that. That's fine. But you got to have something. You got to have something. I want to lovingly say this to you. If you are not committed to any small group, I believe you're in sin. Okay? I believe you're in sin. I think this is mandatory for every single member of the body of Christ. I think this is the assumption of Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, one of you has a spiritual song. One of you has a prophecy. He has a teaching. The picture is you're coming together. Everyone's participating. Everyone's ministering. Everyone's doing it. If you come with just on Sundays, you're not ministering. You're just receiving. And we've built a church where everybody thinks, my job. No. You receive so that you can effectively minister and love others. How are you going to do it if you don't do it? at a, That's where you get the practice. That's where you start doing it. And if you're faithful in it, God will expand your anointing. He'll expand your heart. He'll give you a heart to love cities and nations. But you got to start with the person next to you. 